welcome to another exciting edition of the Wit and Whiskey Cast. I am one of your delightful hosts this evening, Marcus Eddie Jr., here as always with my boy, the uh, race engineer to my driver, DJ Gag. <laughs> hey, everybody. Uh, or would you rather be an aerodynamicist? You know, you're a sciencey lad. Um, what's the one that gets to draw the things and not have to be on the track? Oh, well, that would, that would be uh, the tech, uh, chief technical officer. All right, I think I'm that guy. Okay, so you're the Adrian Newey to my Max Verstappen. I like that. Uh, so in case you're all completely lost, we are doing a topic that is near and dear to the cockles of my uh, horrifically clogged heart. <laughs> we, are do- <laughs> we are doing Formula One and Whiskey, F1, if you're feeling saucy. The uh, pinnacle of all motorsport, and I would argue, with the possible exception of professional wrestling, the king of all sports. Uh. (laughs) Sure. It's not skateboarding, but that's okay. It's not skateboarding, which we are going to do that. We have talked about doing that before. Uh, X Games and Whiskey. X Games and Whiskey is going to be a thing, I swear. Uh, But yeah, so that's that. I am perspiring at an alarming rate. It is 102 here in the 1821 studios, and I wish I was kidding. That is the actual number on the Mercury as I'm talking to you. How are you up there in the Shire? Well, uh, I'm bougie, and I've got central AC, so I'm, uh, I'm pretty happy except when I had to go water my plants today. Yeah, we, we only have AC in the bedroom, and I do not record in the bedroom. So the wife is upstairs enjoying a book a cold bath, and I think she's watching the Olympics. Uh, And I am down here in the studios just, I I mean, if you hear just a slow drip, 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 I don't have a water leak. It's just me, folks. (laughs) But uh, what did you do this week, buddy? Uh, It it was a good week. Um, More getting used to the new job, and I I love it. It's it's so much fun. Uh, I'm I'm so much less stressed out than in my old job, so uh, that's, that's always good. Um, and, uh, we got back to contact at Kempo in the last couple of weeks. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't actually punched anyone in like a year and a half and we finally got to do some, some one-on-one work in the last couple of weeks and I missed it folks. You know, you you gotta be knocked in the head a few times to really start enjoying that shit, but uh, I've had no, like, partner contact in a year and a half, and it was, like, right after I got my black belt that we went into quarantine. Somebody really needs to make a drop of you saying that. I haven't punched anyone in, like, a year and a half. (laughs) That's, like, something I would say, just bitter and angry. Be like, I haven't punched anyone in a year and a half. It definitely has a different energy when it's my bubbly voice saying it. It does. It really <laughs> does. Uh, but other than that, we uh, there's a relatively local farm. It's about 25 minutes away from us. Uh, and they do, um, y- the whole season they do fruit picking. And it's like a week or two until the end of strawberry season. So we went and just plucked an obscene amount of strawberries. I've got a full gallon freezing in the, the freezer right now. Uh, in vacuum bags, so I can use them for creating jams later in the season. And uh, I, I'm that it's I've got a small bag in the fridge full of strawberries for my my next liquor infusion. Uh, I started the sweet milk liqueur. It's been going almost a week, and I think it's Thursday when I get to to strain it out and see how it came out. So, um, assuming that goes well, 
uh, I will then be infusing that with strawberries. So I'll, uh, I'll be straining it out a couple of times, then I'll take a shot of it and make sure it doesn't make me sick, and then I'll, I'll infuse it with strawberries. Now, are you going to sit a little bit on the side and do the experiment we were talking about several months ago? Remind me what said experiment was. You were going to put some fruit in your soda stream, and you were going to carbonate the fruit and then put it in the drink. I, you know, that's a good point. I do have some strawberries in that bag. I can probably put a few aside. I did try carbonating grapes. You did, but you just ate them, didn't you? You didn't make anything with it, did you? Uh, I tried putting them in drinks, and not much happened. But I'll try strawberries. Maybe strawberries will carbonate differently. We need more experimentation. Mm-hmm. Clearly, and I've got plenty of uh, uh, NO2 cartridges to, to run through. or CO2, I don't... I don't know what's in C- CO2. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I just pumped some nitrous into my strawberries. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we're going to be talking about uh, Nazi motorsports contributions in a little bit, and nitrous oxide was another one, or as they called it, the haha device. Oh. <laughs> uh, that was the actual name that they referred to it in the 40s as, the haha device. Well, don't get ahead of us, buddy. What did you get up to this week? I'm just so giddy. I can't help it. <laughs> it's, uh, the old man and I, we actually we did something we also haven't done in a year and a half. We went to a uh, public racetrack, and we sat in the grandstands, and we consumed a race as spectators. Mm. And... With the exception of one race last year that I ended up working as an announcer, promoter type deal, I hadn't been to any racing in the better part of two years. And even then, you know, 99% of the time when I go to the track, even today, if, you know, since I'm not driving anymore, I'm, you know, usually crewing on something or I'm, you know, helping a buddy out or I'm working or announcing or prepping the track. So to just go and sit and watch a race <laughs> is a wonderful thing. Nice. Uh, we sprung, we were bougie this week. We sprung for the club seats, so you have Wi-Fi in the grandstand, so you could follow the timing and scoring on your phones. Uh, they came with race radios, so we could listen to all the pit-to-car communications and uh it had a little enclosed area with some TVs and some private, like, cornhole games and checker games and things that were out of the sun, which was fun because it was, uh, you know, 93, 94 most of the day, and you're sitting on aluminum bleachers. And I mean, I'm pretty red. I look like a lobster right now. I'm not burned. I wore sunscreen, but I am pretty red. Uh, so, but, you know, it was just nice to have a little uh, bonding time with the old man and, you know, just watch him try to figure out, especially near the end of the race, there was a lot of fuel strategy going on, a lot of people on different pit cycles, and watching uh, his brain work through everything as the old crew chief in him as he was trying to figure out who was going to make it on fuel and who was going to do this. That was a lot of fun to watch, almost as much fun as the race. So that was the main thing. Uh, you know, otherwise, just uh, last week was crazy, had a lot of work things, had what hopefully is going to be our last uh, Zoom event for a while. Hopefully we can get back to some in-person stuff. And, you know, we did a uh, ghost hunter seance thing on Saturday. And uh, unlike you, I didn't punch anyone this morning. <laughs> so that was a good thing. I'm so was, proud of you. Yeah, there was a legitimate fear, uh, especially with certain members of uh, my board at work that I, I may have. But I didn't. So we were OK. Uh, did you find any ghosts? 
oh god according to them you know the the other house that we own the denison house is like the single most haunted place on the face of the earth or something i don't know they were going on and on um you know, not not to go on a rant, you know, and uh, we're not going to yuck any yums. I understand everyone has different hobbies. Everyone likes different things. I mean, I just sat outside in 95-degree heat watching cars go around in circles for literally six hours yesterday. So I have no room to criticize anyone. But there was this one couple, and they were an older couple, so I assume they're probably retired. They probably have more free time. But they drove up from Baltimore, Maryland to come to this thing. And that's like the better part of four hours one way. To sit in a room at night in the dark by themselves and just talk out loud to no one. That's all they were doing. They were just sitting out loud asking questions to the air and not getting any answers. And I understand everyone has different hobbies, but man, oh man, I, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Mark Rossetti is saying ghosts are all hokum. So uh, if you if you want to complain at Mark, <laughs> yes the uh, the hosts the group that sort of rented our facility, they kept referring to me as a skeptic, which I guess is you know the polite way of saying it in their terminology. <laughs> I don't know. Oh. All right, anyway, on to on to stuff that is real. What are you drinking today? And you know we had a little outtake during our first attempt at an intro. We didn't lose the internet today, although I did have a massive power outage today. <laughs> I didn't know if we were going to record sixty five hundred different homes and businesses uh, along the entire west side of the river where the eighteen twenty one studios are located. Lost power. It was old school. No traffic lights. No nothing. Uh, but it came back on. Uh, but. You know, when we were trying to record today, I started the intro and DJ took a sip of whatever the hell he was drinking, which he won't tell me. And he gagged hard enough that I laughed for a good two, three minutes and we had to restart the whole thing. So what in the (laughs) hell are you drinking? Uh, Well, a a shout out to uh, my buddy, Matt Grant. I don't know if uh, you are listening. I don't know why you would, but um, he was saying I really had to give peated whiskeys another try. <laughs> I love you, Matt. You're on my Christmas card list now. <laughs> so I am drinking uh, one of the final tasting samples that I have. I'm getting pretty pretty low in my box now. Uh, it is uh, Connemara 12-year-old peated Irish single malt whiskey. Okay. Uh, and it certainly doesn't taste like the Irish whiskeys I know and love. (laughs) Go on. It tastes like burning. (laughs) Uh, It tastes like burning and and hatred and disappointment from a father. It's just not wonderful. I, I can imagine if you like Pete, this is probably pretty good. Um, it definitely has that strong, <coughs> strong peaty taste. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, it does have a little bit of fruity, woody undertones, but it, it has, it, it's got a spice kick at the end that's just kicking my ass right now. Um, and oh man, does it, t- does it, it, it tastes like I'm just eating an ashtray. So, uh, whew, yeah, it's uh, certainly a whiskey. It certainly exists. Um, 
I, I guess I would recommend this for anybody that likes peated whiskeys because if I can get past the peat, it is fairly smooth. Uh, it's it's a little little syrupy on the palate, you know, kind of like a you know, some of your aged whiskeys, and uh, I do enjoy the wood back notes. And I if I really try, I might be able to get a little fruit out of it, but. Uh, it's uh, 80 proof. Um, you can get a bottle of it for yourself for apparently $80. So that's uh, not worth it. Um, but you know what? Uh, if you like peated whiskeys. Uh, Hot takes in whiskey, whiskey this week on the W&W. Uh, so, Matt, I tried it again. I'm not a fan, but uh, I hope you're, you're uh, somewhere sipping a nice glass tonight. The Witten Whiskey Cast may actually be the only place where you will find a negative review of a single malt whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I liked it. I, I honestly usually enjoy single malts, and um, some of the... the uh, what the hell is that area of Scotland that I actually like scotch from? I can't think of words right now. Well, you like it from the... Speyside. Yes, space side. Yeah, you I don't like Islay. No, I don't like Islay. Uh, I there's been a couple of space side single malts that I've had, and I've really enjoyed those. Um, so I, I do not enjoy this whiskey. Um, if you are a fan of Irish whiskeys and not a fan of Scotch, I would steer you away from this. If you're a fan of Scotch but you want to start getting into Irish whiskeys, this is probably a good onboard for you. Um, I'm not a fan, but I'm not going to yuck any ums here. I'm just going to try to chew my way through the rest of this. Uh, Mark, what are you drinking? Uh, this may be the most bougie episode. I mean, if, if we just cut all my audio out and just have snippets of you and put it over like the masterpiece theater music. Cause first you're like, I'm sitting in my wondrous central air conditioning over here. And then a few minutes later, you're like, you know, I normally enjoy a good single malt. However, I just can't stomach this. One. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I went to the opposite end of the spectrum, but this is actually a bottle I've had sitting on the shelf for a long time. And I have not reviewed for one reason or another. I bought it. God, I think there were th like two or three episodes left in season two when I picked this up. Uh, and looking at different listings online, I guess I'm technically dipping into the well tonight, but I don't think so. I like it. I am drinking G&W's Private Stock Sour Mash Bourbon. Ooh. And it has on the bottle an age statement of five years. Uh, looking online, you could pick it up for anywhere between 18 to $20. I paid about 25 here. And I'm at the point now where when I go to the liquor store, I usually buy whatever it is that I went there to get. And then I wander around the whiskey section just to find a bottle I've never tried before to buy it for the podcast. Yeah, that's what I do too. <laughs> so this is one of those. Uh, I actually quite like it. it. It's a, as I said, a five-year-old Kentucky sour mash bourbon. A Kentucky sour mash bourbon that is bottled in New Jersey. Don't know how I feel about that necessarily, but here we are. Uh, at least they're honest about it. It uh, is kind of neat. It's kind of like crackly, spicy. It has some pepper in it. It has a little bit of heat at the hit. 
But it also, even though it's a bourbon, it does kind of have a more weedy, rye you know, bite. Um, you could sort of taste like a almost breadness to it. Uh, we had brought a race to the, or yeah, a race. We had brought a flask to the race yesterday, and uh, I had rye in it because I brought it. And my father goes, oh, it has that just flat bread taste that all rye does. I'm like, shut up, Pops. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we don't let him review on the show. But this has a little bit of that. And then it has sort of a sweet ending. And I could not put my finger on what it was. So I went on their website, and it's apparently roasted fig seeds at the end. So you get a little bite. You get a little spice. It mellows out to that good sour mash bourbon taste. And at the end, you just get a little bit of sweet. It's kind of like a reverse Sour Patch Kid. Um, Has a good golden color to it. I like it. So even though price-wise it may be a well whiskey, I'm probably going to put this into the regular rotation for a bourbon. I mean, I'm not super big on bourbons anymore, as we've established on this, but I quite like this. Nice. I, I'm always glad when we can find a, you know, a, a whiskey on a budget that, that we can recommend to people. Yeah, and you know that was it was a nice little thing, and maybe now it's going to make me go upstairs and crack open a few more of the bottles that have just been sitting on the shelf, <laughs> waiting to be reviewed. I I had the weirdest whiskey moment this weekend when I was uh, rooting around for for a whiskey for a cocktail because it, I, and I don't know why it should have been super obvious, but the recipe called for a Tennessee whiskey, and it was. It clearly was calling for Jack Daniels. Okay. Like, it, like based on the spice notes and everything else and, and the sweetness coming in from the syrup, it was clearly asking for Jack Daniels, but they weren't naming it by name, you know, to avoid any copyright issues. And for the life of me, I went through my whole whiskey collection. I was like, do I have any Tennessee whiskeys? I don't know to Tennessee wh-, until I finally pulled the Jack Daniels. And I was like, <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> And it was just one of those, like, I just had a dumb moment where I was like, I should fucking know this. I have drank so much Jack in my life. I should know. I should know that it's a Tennessee whiskey. And anytime somebody goes Tennessee whiskey, they're probably talking about Jack. Yeah, that was, you know, if you go all the way back to season one, when I reviewed that whiskey milkshake, uh, since they couldn't use any brand names, they advertised that it featured the most famous of all the Tennessee whiskeys. Yeah. Of course, they were just using Jack with electrical tape over the label. Yeah, exactly. No, my, my, my brother would reach through the, my headphones and throttle me for not remembering that it was just Jack. Oh, but, you know, hey, it's all good. It is. Uh, what do you get for whiskey news, man? Uh, just a quick one today. It's a short article that I found, but it really, really uh, intrigues me. This is from two days ago, and it's uh, new up-and-coming raw uses special technology to speed up aging process. And so there is a new distillery out called Bespoken Spirits, uh, Bespoken Spirits, and this is their rye whiskey. Uh and it's made by was founded by two Silicon Valley guys, Stu Aaron and Martin Janasek. I hope I pronounced your name right, Martin. Uh, and they like to invest, and they like whiskey. And so basically, they're skipping the barrel aging. What? 
Yes. No, they're distilling the, the whiskey, the rye, and they are skipping the barrel aging, and they're putting it in a completely HVAC-controlled clean room in wooden staves. And this cuts the aging process by years, literal years. So uh, basically, let's say, and it, they don't go into the exact thing, but it could be up to 50%. So a five-year uh, age label could technically be achieved in two and a half and so on and so forth. Uh, moreover, uh, Stu Aaron was saying that since they have this clean room, thing, they've basically built a laboratory. And since you're not letting all the whiskey just sit in a cask in a warehouse somewhere for 5, 10, 15 years, you can literally control every single aspect of it. You have so much precision. You can adjust the temperature. You can adjust the humidity level. You can do all this. So each bottle, theoretically, if they do it correctly, will be identical because Hmm. there will be no variations amongst the barrels. Uh, this obviously, if it takes off, is going to create quite a controversy in the industry because uh, age statements are a big thing, as we all know. Uh, but, you know, they've just started, and, you know, the company is only about three years old now. Their rye is getting rave reviews. It's uh, $35 a bottle for a fifth, uh, for those of you that are interested. And if you just Google uh, Bespoken Spirits, it, it comes right up. So this is something that I'm curious on. This is something I want to keep my eye on. Because while I am a traditionalist, while I'm a historian, this could be kind of neat if you could get 15, 20-year whiskey equivalents in 8 to 10 years. Fuck it. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. So that's, that's whiskey news for this week. Uh, what do you have for us for Tools of the Trade? Well, I figured today, since we're uh, basically sweating our balls off today, I figured we could talk about different ways of chilling your whiskey. <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's a good call. It is. Actually, I'm, I'm all about this. So uh, I went and did a bunch of research on the side, and uh, so traditionally... Um, you know, before we got bougie and fancy and shit, <laughs> you had whiskey neat or whiskey on the rocks, and uh, there, you know, ice comes in many different uh, uh, clarities and many different shapes and all sorts of good stuff. There, um, there are a lot of really awesome modern ice molds. There are some that. Uh, that kind of brag about being able to do that directional freezing we talked about in our first Tools of the Trade uh, trailer about clear ice. And uh, so you can look them up. They're fairly expensive, but they make large ice cubes kind of meant for drinking whiskey. Uh, And the idea is the bigger the ice cube, the clearer it is, the slower it's going to melt. Uh, So uh, they, they say the best... The, the best ice cube you can get for whiskey is a perfectly clear ice sphere. Uh, and there are a lot of uh, sphere ice molds out there. Um, if you get the standard plastic ones with the rubber tops, uh, those are pretty good. Um, you know, if you're everyday sipping, if you want to get bougie and fancy, you can seek out some of the more expensive directional freezing ones. I, I find it really hard to directionally freeze uh, an orb of ice. So, 
Uh, if you could have just up there, I find it really hard to directionally freeze. Period. <laughs> no, <laughs> End dire- of sentence. directionally freezing is fine. <laughs> I, I mean, a thirteen dollar cooler and some patience will get you clear ice. Um, but one actually, of those two things I have. Yeah, <laughs> fair. Um, so if you don't want to deal with ice, because let's say you're a purist and you really don't want to water down your whiskey, which I mean, fair. Um, I, for one, think that there are definitely whiskeys that open up as they dilute a little bit. Um, but if you're not the kind of person who wants to chance that, uh, you can always drink whiskey neat and add a couple of drops of water to open it up as well. Um, but that doesn't chill it, so we're not going to talk about that. Uh, you can get whiskey stones, and you've heard Mark and I talk about whiskey stones. I'm drinking whiskey with whiskey stones tonight. As am I. Yeah. Uh, And whiskey stones are uh, generally either uh, cubes or spheres. They're generally made from a non-toxic soapstone uh, or granite. Uh, Sometimes they're made from stainless steel. I don't don't like the stainless steel ones personally, uh, just because I don't like the idea of metal and glass together. And uh, it, it, I don't know, I, it, squicks me out a little bit. So I like the stones. They're heavy, they clunk, um, and they, they, they're a little bit aesthetically pleasing. Uh, and they're great. That you, you Generally, they'll come like you know six or nine in a pack. You toss them in the little bag that they come in, toss them in your freezer, and they just they don't freeze. They're already solid, but they, they get really, really cold, and then you add them into your glass and pour the whiskey over it, and it'll nicely chill and mellow out your whiskey. Uh, there's also whiskey pucks, and I really like whiskey pucks. I don't actually own any, um, but whiskey pucks, they're either stone or steel. Uh, some of them are novelty. You know, you, If you're into hockey, you can get a whiskey puck with your team's logo on it. Oh, my God. Um, and just like... <laughs> the entire nation of Canada now hates us. Uh, and then if, if you take that puck, you put it in the freezer, it's the same principle as whiskey stones. Um, it will heat up a little bit slower, so you might get more chill out of it. Again, the same principle as a, a large ice cube for whiskey. Uh, there's lots of other things you can do, but they s- from here we start to get into strange whiskey arguments. Um, I am a big fan of a chilled glass, uh, especially when it's as hot as it has been lately. Uh, I like to, before recording, I take my whiskey stones, I toss them in my rocks glass, and then I put the rocks glass in the freezer for you know, 20 minutes and really get everything nice and cold. Uh, from there, and honestly, I don't know why I've never asked this question, but um, you could technically just put your bottle of whiskey in the freezer Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> I'm not recommending you do that, um, specifically for whiskey, and I'm sure there's reasons why. I uh, have been known to put uh, a bottle of vodka in the freezer, um, and I think that's a thing that you do with vodka. Uh, I've never done it with whiskey, and I've, I thought about this as I was prepping for this episode, and I was like, huh, I've put tequila in the freezer, I've put vodka in the freezer. I've never put any dark liquor in the freezer. So, Mark, I'm coming to you to ask the hard question here. Why don't we just 
put our whiskey in the freezer. Well, uh, I have never done this with my personal whiskey, but there are a few bottles we keep in the freezer at St. Conrad's. Hmm. And the reason for this is solely uh, customer preference, customers asking. Mm-hmm. And I have noticed, and I don't know if this is one thing or the other, but I have noticed it is only flavored whiskeys. Oh. There are no actual whiskey whiskeys in the freezer. Uh, I suppose, theoretically, there is no reason why you couldn't. Um, I don't just for the simple fact, with the exception of a day like today, where the heat even is starting to get to me and I enjoy the summer, I don't really like my whiskey cold. I want it just a little bit below room temperature. I just want it a little bit chilled. Like, even in the winter sometimes, because I don't keep the heat cranked, I will drink it just neat. So, for me, I don't put them in the freezer just because I don't want them that cold. Uh, I will say, like anything else involving whiskey, uh, appearances can be everything. There nearly was a row at Conrad's a few weeks ago when I went to fetch a bottle from the bar. And the older folks, or went to fetch a bottle from the refrigerator, rather, and the old folks were about to riot on the college kids that had this bottle of Crown Apple in the freezer. And, oh, God damn it, whiskey's supposed to be warm. You kids are putting whiskey in the freezer. <laughs> um, now, you know, who gives a fuck what people think? That's, that's a stupid reason to do anything. But, you know, there is that, and this hobby is full of uh, preconceived notions. But no, uh, you know, realistically... There is no reason, uh, again, as we've established with our talk on decanters, and I don't want to steal too much because I'm sure you're probably going to do a tools of the trade on that at some point, mm. but we've discussed it a little bit already. Uh, oxygenating, ox, you know, gaining oxygen, aging whiskey, once it's already out of the bottle, once it's already out of the barrel, that's not really a thing. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to affect the flavor profile too, too much. So, I mean, I suppose there might be some scientific thing with super cold and affecting the flavors and whatnot. You're not going to change anything all that much. And even if you do, the minute the glass warms up again, it's going to go back to what it was. There's, there's nothing really you can do aside from dumping other stuff into it that's going to permanently change the flavor profile once you've already opened the bottle. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've talked about the myth of the neck pour. It all ties into the same thing. <laughs> it's true. It's something that I never really thought of, and I'm still going to continue not putting my whiskey in the freezer. Um, but I just, I, I realize, like, I've almost always got some half-full bottle of vodka in the freezer for, for martinis and stuff, and I've never put a bottle of whiskey in the freezer. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if you really wanted to chill a Manhattan, you know, the same way, because I, you know, I presume that that's why you keep the vodka in the freezer for your martinis, is you chill the glass, you chill the vodka, and you get it nice and cold. Yeah. If you really wanted to do a Manhattan that same way, put your vermouth in the freezer. (laughs) Same gimmick. Yeah, but wine freezes. Ah, that's true. That is true. Although, you know, there's some pretty high-test vermouths out there. There's vermouth, and then there's some of these wild, exotic... I mean, if you just have a bottle of Martini and Rossi like I do, it'll probably freeze. Oh, yeah. But if you get some of these designer vermouths, you might not. But, yeah, that's a good point. So, no, I guess you're fucked. So don't put your whiskey in the freezer. Or do. Either one. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. 
So the last two things was um, there are plastic ice cubes that are filled with water that you can use to chill your whiskey that apparently gets your whiskey really cold. But Mark, how, how was your experience with the Chaos Emeralds? Yes, so uh, what DJ's referring to is I have an insane variety. For somebody who drinks their whiskey neat 50% of the time, I have an entire freezer door full of shit for whiskey. Uh, I have whiskey stones. I have whiskey pucks, but I'm not bougie like DJ. My pucks are uh, stainless steel. (laughs) My stones are stone, but my pucks are stainless steel. I have uh, spherical ice molds. I have the giant whiskey ice cube molds that are like, you know, four cubes in a normal size tray. They're fucking monsters. And just two weeks ago now, was it? My wife brought home a giant 30-pack of these little plastic blue diamonds, in which DJ and I, being huge fanboys of Sonic the Hedgehog, began immediately calling the Whiskey Chaos Emeralds. <laughs> And they're, they look just like a plastic diamond. They have a little bit of water inside them, and you freeze them, and you put them in uh, your drink when they're ready, and it works just like a whiskey stone or a puck, and you know that they're done once the water inside is water again and not ice. And I was a little skeptical at first because they're plastic, and I was wondering, you know, would you get any residual plastic taste uh, through the drink? And they do come with instructions before you use them on how to wash them very thoroughly, presumably to prevent that. And, you know, the pandemic and all that. Uh, but I have to say, I didn't notice anything. It didn't really change the taste all that much. <laughs> Honestly, though, it takes some adjustment just because it looks goofy. <laughs> <laughs> you have all these bright blue pieces of plastic in your whiskey and it looks a little strange, but fuck it, it works. So um, I like those. I think I still like my stones the best uh, just because they're, you know, classic, they're elegant. Uh, but the pucks are great. These plastic ones are great. And if I'm going ice, I've been enjoying the spheres because with the molds, I can put cherries in them. Oh, so good. So that way when it melts, now you have a cherry in your drink. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I cut up a bunch of strawberries and, and put them in ice cubes and in old ice cube trays in the freezer. So uh, I made Holly a drink tonight with some, some strawberry ice cubes. We won't put our bottles of whiskey in the fridge. That's a bridge too far. But God damn it, we put fruit in our eyes. <laughs> yeah. Because we bougie. What the fuck is wrong with us? This is the bougiest episode of Wit and Wins. It's true. So the last thing I have, because we are getting close to time here, uh, is that there is something that you can do uh, that I guess is the most preferred way of chilling whiskey. And it's called the whiskey wedge. And honestly, I've only ever seen this in like Japanese cocktail bar videos on YouTube. And what it is is that you take a block of ice and you, using like a sharp paring knife, you cut it to the contours of your glass and then drop it into your glass. And it almost takes up the whole damn glass. And because it's contoured to your glass, there isn't a lot of surface area and it melts extremely slowly. So that's, uh, if you're looking for some really nice ways to chill your whiskey, you like it on the rocks. Uh, check out the whiskey wedge method. I'm going to have to look into that. That is one thing I have not ventured into. 
So we'll have to play around a little bit with that. Yeah, there's if once you make clear ice and you can start carving it on your own, there's definitely some some cool shit and shapes you can do with it. Um, and I've seen people making like Mario stars to throw in their whiskey and whatnot. I'm all about that. I'm all about that. But anywho, enough about tools of the trade. Uh, tell me about the Vroom Vrooms. Well, I suppose it's fitting that this ended up, again, we, we are not this clever, ladies and gentlemen. We don't plan these things out much more than, you know, a rough outline and a topic. But I suppose it's fitting that this ended up being the bougiest episode on record because we're going to talk about the bougiest racing series <laughs> in the world. The one that is accused by um, detractors and, if we're honest, most Americans alike as being for the wine and cheese crowd. Well, today it's for the bourbon and tobacco crowd. I don't know. I don't <laughs> know where that segue is going. Uh, but we are going to talk about Formula One. Woo! Now. Yes, woo indeed. Uh, for those of you who don't know, for don't follow motorsport, uh, Formula One is probably the pinnacle. It's probably the most popular motorsport worldwide. Certainly not in America, but uh, we'll talk more about that next week with part two. And it's because it's on its way up. Actually, it's probably the most popular it's been in America since I was a little kid, mm. which is good to see. Uh, but it has just. Tens of millions of viewers a week worldwide. Uh, races, there's 23 races, and it was supposed to be in 21 different countries this year, but with COVID, they had to cut a few out and run double races. So I think they're only racing in like 15 or 16 countries this year instead of 21. But uh, at one point, they have held a race in the better part of 40-some countries and on six continents. So, uh, and damn it, once we build a track in Antarctica, we're going there too. So one good thing about global warming, eventually we'll be able to build a track in Antarctica. No. Anyway. Uh, so it's an open-wheel type of racing series. So if you're an American, it's similar to IndyCar. There are no fenders. Uh, it's open cockpit. You have large wings on the front and rear. That's what it looked like back then. What we're gonna, or now, what we're going to talk about today is the history. We're going to talk about what it looked like back then and its evolution until now so the cars didn't always look like hammerhead sharks no now see the reason why they're open wheel open cockpit is because when it started you wanted they didn't when cars were first built and when racing first began you know there's the old adage that the very first car race started when the second car was built and that's obviously a joke, but it's not super far from the truth <laughs> we were racing in the 1890s already and obviously we didn't, certainly had no understanding of aerodynamics. We only roughly knew that more horsepower was better. Uh, we had no concept of different tire compounds or gear ratios or anything like that. So the simplest way to make a car go fast was to make it lighter. Hmm. And if it's a race car, it doesn't need things like, you know, a windshield or windshield wipers or headlights or anything like that. So you eventually got to the point where they were just ripping chunks of bodywork off. So you didn't have a roof, you didn't have uh, fenders, you didn't have any of this stuff because the car didn't need to be road legal. And eventually that got put into the rules and that's the way it is now. Believe me, you know, we were talking about uh, chief technical officers earlier, you know, guys like Adrian Newey, guys like Gordon Murray. 
they would kill to be able to put covers over the wheels and, you know, have all that god-awful airflow underneath bodywork and be able to channel it somewhere else. But they can't. It's not allowed. And really, the only reason nowadays is just tradition, <laughs> if we're being honest. It's just stuck in the rules because that's the way the cars looked back in the day. And that's kind of why I like driving the Roadster I have so much because that was that era in the, the teens and the 20s when we're just going to rip every piece of bodywork off the car and, ooh, it's a race car now because it's all just stripped down and everything. <laughs> you know, and it's just it's an old throwback to that with just modern technology. So, uh, as I said, they were uh, racing... As early as 1890, 1891, the first large international races were actually here in America. We were trendsetters. You had the Gordon uh, Bennett Cup. But the thing with the Gordon Bennett Cup is they only allowed so many entries per country. So, you know, even if you would send, let's say Italy, for example, if Alfa Romero sent, you know, five cars and Fiat sent however many cars, they were only allowed three cars, period, that were built in Italy or in France or in Great Britain or in America. And this really, really pissed the French off. Uh, the first 35, 40 years or so, France was the mecca of uh, car building and car design. So basically the way Americans look at Detroit from you know, 1950, 1960, 1970, that's the way France was in 1890, 1900, 1910, 1920. Wow. And so the French did what they always do, and they said, we'll have our own race with blackjack and hookers. (laughs) (laughs) And in 1906, they came up with Le Grand Prix, which literally in English means the great prize. Isn't the Grand Prix still a thing? It is. Every, uh, Formula One does not contest races. It contests Grands Prix, which the Grand is plural, not the Prix. I don't know why, but that's the way you say it, Grands Prix. Uh, so we're still contesting great prizes today. Back then, it was just a big boatload of money. Uh, now it's a you know, huge world championship and yada, 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 which we'll get into. Uh, the first Grand Prix actually started at Le Mans, it was not the same circuit uh, of Le Mans that they use for the 24-hour race today, uh, which will probably be another episode, maybe in season four or season five. Uh, and it was held over two days. They did six laps of this track the first day, and they did six laps of this track the second day. And now to put it into perspective, the current uh, Grand Prix rules they go for either 305 kilometers or for two hours, whatever comes first. In the very first Grand Prix in 1906, there was no time limit, and the 12 laps of the circuit totaled 1,236 kilometers. Oh, no. Uh, Had 32 starters from 12 different manufacturers, and the winning car was a Renault, so a French car won the French Grand Prix and everyone was happy. And it won in a blistering time of 12 hours, 14 minutes, and 7 seconds. Is that fast? Is that slow? Uh, it was considered fast for the day. Um, you know, I mean, to put this into perspective, this was the era of city-to-city races. I mean, th- this loop actually you know, took place between you know, Le Mans and uh, Cléant-Briand. Uh, 
So uh, you had that in different city-to-city races. We actually had one here in uh, Wilkes-Barre. There was a Wilkes-Barre to Philadelphia city-to-city race a few years later in the teens, because, of course, purpose-built racetracks didn't exist. And uh, Wilkes-Barre to Philadelphia today on a bad day, if you hit traffic, two hours, 15 minutes, two hours, 20 minutes. If you get a clear run, like if you were to leave now as we're recording this at night, you'd be there in an hour, 45 minutes. Wow. The Wilkes-Barre city-to-city race took just over 24 hours. (laughs) Okay, that's a lot. Yeah, so, you know, just to put that into perspective. And basically, this Grand Prix idea took off because it was it was manufacturers sending their best technology, their best experimental prototypes to race for not just factory glory, but national glory. Um, the Renaults had the, in this 1906 race, had the very first hydraulic shocks that were ever fitted to a racing car. And Michelin came out with a tire that you didn't have to cut out with a knife. What? Yes, yes. Those early tires, you literally had to pull out a knife, cut the tire in the tube from the rim, and sort of wrestle and force it back on. And, you know, it was a big thing. Michelin actually came out with one of the earliest forms of a quote-unquote quick-change tire. And that allowed the teams that were running Michelin tires, which were the French teams, because, you know, of course, Michelin's a French tire company, uh, to execute lightning fast pit stops. One of the Renault teams uh, was able to change tires in three minutes and 14 seconds. Uh, to put that into perspective, in the F1 race yesterday, Red Bull had a pit stop of 2.1 seconds. So we've come a little ways since then. Uh, but the Grand Prix format really took off. And as purpose built racetracks began to be built, this became the de rigueur racing format, especially in Europe. So through the teens, you still have more city to city races than you have World War One, And then you start to see uh, proper Grands Prix pop up. And a lot of these tracks still exist today. And a lot of these tracks in some form or another are still raced at today. You have Monza, which is in Italy, which is known as the Cathedral of Speed, which they've been racing at since the 20s. Uh, Spa, Francorchamps, which is in Belgium, which is a heavily modified version of the original circuit, but still parts of it are the original circuit that they've been racing at since you know, the uh, pre-war and post-war years. Uh, Le Mans still exists as a track, although it's completely different from the first one, as we already mentioned you have the Nürburgring in Germany, the Green Hell, you know, the monster 14-mile, seven-minute-a-lap, you know, brutal thing r- racing through the Eiffel Mountains. Just yesterday, F1 was at the Red Bull Ring, which is a modified version of the Ostrichring, which they've been racing on since the 60s and the 70s. So you start to see these tracks pop up. And it became the place to show off not just your technology, but your national pride. This is where we get international racing colors uh, because you didn't have sponsorship back then. And it didn't necessarily matter what team you were from since you weren't advertising anything. You know, you might put a little stripe or a little logo for your team. What mattered was the color of your car, and the color of your car told you where the team was based. Uh, Red was Italy. uh, Blue was France. Germany was white, although the Germans being the Germans, during these pre-war Grand Prix, you didn't have a minimum weight. You had a maximum weight. Mm -hmm. 
And as the story goes, the Germans were one kilogram over before Monaco. Monaco is another old school track they've been racing at since the 20s. We're still racing at through the streets of Monte Carlo. And the story goes they were one kilogram over. And so at night, just before tech, just before they were going to go and get inspected and they would have failed, they scraped all the paint off. So the cars were bare aluminum. And that was enough. The old heavy paint was one kilogram. And so the story went, they uh, passed inspection. Nobody really knows why the German cars showed up bare metal at Monaco, but they did. And that's where the name the Silver Arrows comes from, which is a name that uh, Mercedes-Benz still goes by today. They still, up until last year, when they started supporting Black Lives Matter and a few other causes, uh, you know, they got it more involved socially. Uh, their cars were still silver to this day because of that. So, uh, oh, in America, for those of you playing the home game, is white with a blue stripe at the bottom and blue stripes over the hood. And don't get at me with this Gordon Bennett 1903 red bullshit. Every American car manufacturer recognizes white and blue as the official colors. That's the official colors. It's recognized by the FIA, too. So I don't care what James Glickenhouse says. I love James. He's a great guy. I wish him nothing but the best with his project, but he's wrong about red being the American racing color. <laughs> okay. He's just flat out wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, and so you had these nations running. Now, the problem with racing is racing goes through periods of it being popular and not popular, but when it's popular, it's usually very popular. And it has a lot of eyes on it, and not only could you use that for technological development, you could use it for propaganda. Hmm. And no one is a bigger fan of, was a bigger fan of propaganda than the Nazis. And uh, Adolf Hitler actually liked racing. He was friends with a lot of racing drivers, Hans Stuck being one of them. And he realized he could use this as a way to promote, you know, the glorious German technology and the rebuilding of Germany before World War II in the early 30s. So they pumped a ton of money. We are talking 300, 400, 500,000 Reichmarks per year into the auto industry and just said, build the best racing cars you can, win everything there is. So much so that there was a government official, an actual uh, Nazi general, Adolf Hunlin, who was the government director of motorsport activities. <laughs> can you imagine Biden having like a cabinet minister, the head of NASCAR? That's crazy. <laughs> Yes, that was what this was. And whatever they, especially later on during the war, whatever they needed, oh, there's a fuel shortage. Well, we'll make sure you guys get some fuel to go to some of the, the few races that are still going on. Oh, what's that? Your best driver just got drafted. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. He'll be exempted from service. This was the shit they were doing. Holy crap. Yeah, it's insane, dude. And throughout the entire 1930s, uh, mostly Mercedes-Benz, but also Auto Union, which is still around today as Audi, won everything there was. <laughs> the, few, the few times Alfa Romero was able to win, usually uh, with uh, my, you know, one of my favorites, Tazio Nuvolari behind the wheel, uh, they were just seen as glorious national holidays in Italy because that was the only time that one of those damn silver cars wasn't winning. Wow. So you didn't have a proper championship at the time. You had the European championship, because, of course, the race was in Europe. Uh, obviously, they didn't finish the one in 1939. World War II kind of broke out. Although, interestingly enough, the Italians were still organizing races after the 
invasion of Poland, which I just, that's just such an Italian thing. Ah, we'll have a few more races, it's fine. So uh, through World War II, of course, there were no more races. They were very sporadic uh, after the war, since most of Europe was completely destroyed. And uh, there's not a lot of money to build, you know, racing cars and racing facilities when you need to rebuild people's lives, understandably. But by 1950, things were in place to have the first proper world's championship. And so the first World Grand, uh, F1 World Championship Grand Prix, which was the World Championship for drivers at the time, they didn't have a Constructors' Championship yet, uh, was at Silverstone in England in May, 71 years ago, which, again, another track they still race at today. It was an old World War II airfield, fittingly enough. And you had six races in Europe, and then the way they got around the World Championship part was they included the Indianapolis 500, as one of the rounds. Hmm. Now, it was in America. It had a completely different rule set. IndyCar and F1 are similar looking. They are similar idea on how to make the car go fast, et cetera, et cetera. But the actual rules were completely different. But they included it solely to be able to say that it was a world's championship. That's fair. So we got in on it. Yeah, so we got in on it. And with the exception of Ferrari and Ascari in 1953... There was very, very little F1 interest in Indianapolis until, ironically enough, the 60s when it was no longer part of the World Championship. But that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Uh, the rules were simple. You had a weight limit and you had an engine displacement limit. And for the longest time, pretty much well into the 80s, those were not the only rules, but pretty much the only rules of sustenance. The car has to weigh so much and the engine can only be so big. Hmm. Otherwise, figure it out. Uh, later on they would start to add things like 1955 Mercedes-Benz returned with a fully enclosed body you know it actually had like a sports car body on it and they won everything that moved so then they said well no the wheels have to be open basically once somebody did something ingenious they banned it and that's how we got more rules but at first it was it was pretty early so the 50s you had early domination by the pre-war marks Alfa Romero Lancia Mercedes-Benz and then you start to see the first rise of Ferrari Ferrari was originally a team running Alfa Romero's pre-war. Then Enzo Ferrari got mad, broke away, started his own car company in the 40s after the war. He made railroad parts during the war, interestingly enough. Is this that whole Ford versus Ferrari thing, or is that unrelated? That's unrelated, but it is in this time frame. It is in the 60s, well, 50s and 60s. Nice. so we're a little bit before that, but uh, he, he came out and then they ended up running Lancia's later on. But you saw the Italian marks and then Mercedes Benz. So really 1950 all the way through until 57, 58, 59, it was dominated by major car manufacturers, which makes sense. They have all the equipment. They have all the tools. And more importantly, they have the money. They can drop however much money a year into building purpose-built race cars. However... By the end of the 50s and into the 60s, you see the rise of the garagista. And this is an interesting thing. In an interview, Enzo Ferrari said that there were two types of entries in Formula One. There was the Grandi Constructori, which was himself, Alfa Romero, Mercedes-Benz, Later on, Talbot Ligier, major car manufacturers, people that actually build road cars. They're the Grandi Constructori, the great constructors. 
And then there is the garagistas, which basically would be me and the old man. (laughs) Okay, now I see where you're going. (laughs) Yes, just guys that hammer some metal together in a shed and show up with a race car and go, hey, we're here. The problem was, starting in the late 50s and throughout pretty much the entirety of the 60s, with one exception when the rules changed, the garagistas kicked the shit out of the Grand Deconstructories. They were innovative. They were, you know, creative. They were crafty. You had names, uh, some of which are still with us, Lotus, Van Wall, uh, Brabham, or I'm sorry, Motor Racing Development, if you want to be technical, uh, Williams Grand Prix Engineering, and what centered around that was the Cosworth DFE, because the most, still to this day, the most expensive part of any racing car is the engine. Mm. And Ford got together with Lotus and the and Cosworth Engineering in France, and they created the DFE, the dual four valve engine. And after one year with Lotus, it became available to anyone that wanted one. And these were cheap enough that for several years... In Formula One, you would have 30-some cars showing up to a Grand Prix to qualify, and the only cars that weren't DFV-powered were Ferrari. Hmm. They had their own engines. Everyone else brought a DFV. And then later on, Renault showed back up, and Alfa Romero showed back up, et cetera, et cetera. But the vast bulk of the field was Cosworth-powered. And because of that, that allowed teams with lesser money to go racing, and that allowed them to come up with things like, you know, onboard brakes, uh, sliding skirt, and ground effects, the first uses of wind tunnels in racing. Uh, first sponsorship, uh, Gold Leaf Tobacco and Lotus, that was the first major sponsorship in Grand Prix racing. Now, we Americans had been doing it a little bit earlier. We love to sell out. But in Europe, that was really the first big one. <laughs> and that led to a night, the Wild West period of the 1970s, where pretty much everything was legal until it wasn't. Uh, 1969, you had saw the first rise of wings, as we think of them today, were wings. They called them airfoils. They were terrible. They failed uh, very easily. They basically were made out of cray paper. And after a race at Munich Park in Spain where a wing failed, the Lotus went in the crowd and killed a bunch of people. They were banned for a while until we got the rules that we have now. You had bluff noses. You had radiator noses. You had side pods. You didn't have side pods. You had a ground effect, which I'd mentioned a little bit earlier, where you're actually trying to force air under the car, and you have these giant Venturi tunnels, which create a vacuum, which sucked the car to the ground. Uh, Terrell just said, fuck it, and showed up with a car with six wheels. What? Yes, the, the P- Terrell P34 had four wheels in the front, tiny little 10-inch wheels. They looked like piano casters. And two huge giant wheels in the back, and they ran this in 1976. They won a race with it. They came one-two with it in Sweden, uh, but unfortunately, it was the the whole front assembly with four sets of brakes and you know four sets of shocks and everything was just it was too heavy and it was too hard to develop. So after three years, they abandoned it. But they said fuck it. They ran a six-wheel car. <laughs> a, couple, a couple other teams tested a six-wheel car. Uh, Renault showed up and said, "Hey, you still have?" Because I'd mentioned earlier there were rules on engine size, and there always was an equivalency formula. There was a, a engine size for a naturally aspirated motor, you know, not supercharged, not turbocharged, and then there was an equivalent. Uh, equivalency formula, a 
capacity limit for a supercharged entry, which was the big thing pre-war. People put superchargers on everything. Well, in uh, 1977, Renault showed up with a turbocharged car, and they said, oh, it's basically the same thing, which it is, and it's completely different. And the FIA went, yeah, sure, it's the same thing. And then that really fucked up the 80s, <laughs> like <laughs> really bad. Uh, the other big thing in the 70s that people might be familiar with because of the movie Rush is the battle between uh, Nicky Lauda and James Hunt. And if you haven't seen Rush, I urge you all to see it. Even if you don't like racing, go see it. It's a great movie. Even my wife loved it. Uh, DJ, help me out here. Who's the guy who played Thor? Uh, Chris Hemsworth. I know a yes. thing! Yes. Chris Hemsworth uh, plays James Hunt in that movie. And the bad guy that is currently in uh, not Loki. What was the one before Loki? The TV show. Uh, the Cap and Winter Soldier. Yes, the bad guy in Cap and Winter Soldier is Nikki Lauda nice. in that movie. And Nikki Lauda was the staunch Austrian driving for Ferrari who was clinical and who was scientific and had a technical mind and could set up a car. And you had James Hunt who literally would do a bump of coke off of a stripper's ass, strap himself into the car, high his balls, and go win the race. And that is not an exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he drove for Lord Baron Heathcliff, uh, who was a member of the House of Lords who used to let his crew get drunk on Dom Perignon while they were setting up the race cars. And so in 1976, these two battled hammer and tong over the world championship. And they were totally different personalities. One was straight-laced. One had a sticker on his car that said, Sex is the Breakfast of Champions. And it really endeared the public. And this was the rise of television. This was the rise of international media rights. And it really helped F1 take off. So much so that Ron Howard made a movie about it, a really good movie about it. Uh, but, you know, by the 1980s, now money is starting to take over. So you had what they called the FISA FOCA War. Uh, FISA was the FIA. They were the governing body. It was the Federation of International Sporting Associations was the FISA, which is a big big chunk of words, versus the Formula One Constructors Association, or FOCA. And they were wrestling over money. They were wrestling over TV rights. Uh, there was going to be a rival championship set up, a breakaway. And this led FISA to create the actual proper world's championship. Now, up until this point, for it was 1981 that this finally happened with the Concord Agreement, which was named after the, the uh, PLOS, the... Uh, Concorde, a big plaza in France, same place that the plane is named after, or was named after. It was named for Concorde. Mm. Uh, prior to this, for the first 31 years, you had a world championship. They awarded a world championship for drivers, and they were a world championship for constructors. But it basically was, okay, there's 15 races in Europe. We're going to pick 12 of them, and they're going to be the world championship this year. And so, okay, yes, they're all Formula One races, and they all have to follow the Formula One rule book, sort of. But they're still independent races. They're still hosted by the independent national clubs. They still have their own supplementary rule book. They can allow in their own entries. And so every race was a little different. Every race was sort of backwater. They made their own TV deals. I mean, Monaco used to be completely different. They only had 20 starters when most other races were letting in 26, 28. They used to be on ABC on a Sunday at like 3.30 in the afternoon. 
Um, Spain used to let just random Spanish guys with any old car just show up and run a few laps for the home crowd before they black flagged them. This got rid of everything. This actually created the Formula One World Championship as we know it today. Uh, you have to enter all the races. You have to have a proper team. Uh, there's no more supplementary rule books. You know, you get fined for this, that, the other thing, and you need to have an international super license, which you still need to have today. And this led to the growth of professionalism. I mean, you had proper TV contracts. You got rid of just, I mean, the Grandi, con, uh, the Grandi Constructories and the uh, Garagesis were still there, but you got rid of some of the really terrible uh, entries, you know, your Cowsons uh, uh, and your Mazarios and just some of the awful, awful, awful teams that would show up for four races, go completely bankrupt, and then just disappear. Uh, this led to the takeover uh, by Max Mosley and Bernie Ecclestone. Ecclestone ended up with all of the commercial rights. He owned the Brabham team, but once he took over all the commercial rights for the series, he was making enough money that he just sold the team and just ran the series instead. That was all he ever wanted to do. And then Max Mosley became the head of FISA, which then was merged into the FIA proper. Max Mosley actually just died a few weeks ago, unfortunately. Uh, Max was an interesting guy. Uh, his father was a Nazi, even though they lived in England. And to get away from his dad picking the wrong horse, he got into motor racing, and it kind of worked. Mm. So, so R.I.P. Max, you did a lot for the sport. I know a lot of people don't like you, but you did a lot for the sport. Nice. Uh, the '80s, we also had the the turbos I had mentioned earlier that made things difficult. Uh, when the FIA basically said, "Yeah, they're the same thing," they weren't. You had just insane engines. I mean, the you know. The BMW four-cylinder turbos making 1,200 horsepower in the 1980s in qualifying trim. You have the big Honda V6 turbos that McLaren were running making 900 horsepower, fuel-limited, turned, turned way down. So costs just skyrocketed. And this led to the 90s to the rise of modern Formula One, which this will be the last part we talk about this week. And then when we bring Nick in next week, we'll talk about Formula One today. But you once again saw the, you know, constructory versus garish model. Whereas before it was ground effect versus the big V12 Ferraris, now you have uh, all these funky driver aids that are developing in the later part of the 80s going up against the big turbo engines. So now you have anti-lock brakes. That came out of all this. You have traction control. You have launch control. You have fully hydraulic active suspension. If you want to see something wild, Google the 92, 93 Williams F1 cars. Google their active suspensions on YouTube. You'll find videos of them doing their exercises, for lack of a better term, where they would bleed the bubbles in the hydraulic lines. And the cars would just do squats, one side up, one side down, one side up, one side down. And it was a computer program. So the mechanics would type all this in, and they would leave, and they would just go and eat their lunch or whatever, and the car is just sitting there, up, 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 up. It was just bizarre. Uh, you know, fl uh, fly-by-wire controls, like on an airplane. And people were starting to say, you know, the guys aren't really driving these cars. The computers are driving these cars, which was a load of bullshit. But that's what people said, and that ended up all getting banned, and that started to lead to the insanely thick, multi-hundred-page rule book we have today. Uh, you then had the San Marino Grand Prix at Imola in 1994, two fatalities, a hospitalization... Two crew members got hurt and eight spectators, I believe, all in one, all in a two-day period. Uh, 
And that finally led to some safety changes. Technology had been going pretty much every which way. Fuel was getting better. Engines were getting better. Uh, Chassis construction was getting better. Reliability was getting better. But safety was lagging behind. You had the deformable uh, chassis regulations of the 70s. You had a few fuel cell regulations and different things in the 80s. But for the most part, I mean, you look at those cars in the early 90s, you could punch through the side of the cockpit. You look at the drivers in their cars from the elbow up, they're horrifically exposed. None of the wheels had tethers. Um, they could just break off and fly away at any rate. Oof. So the cars were just insanely dangerous. Um, you could... They basically were late 70s, early 80s design just built with modern materials and things needed to change. So it took that awful day, May 1st, 94, you know, then we finally got, you know, some pr- the side impact tests, the front tests. Formula One cars have to go through crash tests like an actual road car does. And every year they submit their new designs. And if it doesn't pass any, all, all of the tests, much less any of them, uh, it doesn't get raced. Uh, the problem with this, of course, was costs. And so you started to see the phase out of the garagistas. You started to see the independent teams go away and the return of major manufacturers. Um, Arrows died. Liget turned into Prost Grand Prix and they died. Liget was a team that had been racing since the 60s. They died out uh, finally in 2002, kicking or they were still kicking around as Prost. Uh, you know, BAR became Honda. Toyota entered the sport was spending upwards of $800 million a year at one point, which we'll talk about next week <laughs> oh my God. budgets. Yeah, no, we'll talk about budgets next week. <laughs> so uh, much money. And they didn't win a single race, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you basically saw the big companies come in, spend an awful lot of money, and that pushed the little guy out, but it turned it into what we have today. Um, and that's basically where we're going to end for today with a lot of the little guys are gone. We pretty much only have Minardi left. They were the last little guy. Jaguar is in. Toyota is in. Honda is in. It's now circa 2001, and that's where we'll pick up next week. All right. So my turn. I want to, <laughs> Hi, DJ. <laughs> I want to ask some lightning round questions. Yes, do it up. All right. You ready? Yes. Okay. Favorite driver. Uh, pre-war or post-war? Yes. Pre-war, Tazio Nuvolare. Post-war, Michael Schumacher. All right. Favorite team? Uh, probably Red Bull Racing. They, they fascinate me. They're, they're the party team. They took over Jaguar, and they're just a good time, and they're the only ones lately that have been taken at the Mercedes. So Red Bull Racing. Nice. Favorite car? The 1993 Williams FW15C, probably the single most advanced race car ever built still to this day. Favorite track? Oh, God. Um, Monza. Uh, The history, the speed, the atmosphere, and, um, you know, it's just, it's the one everybody likes to look forward to, and it has the best fan base. So, Monza. Favorite sponsor? (laughs) I'm old school. I grew up in the era of the cigarette sponsors. I miss the Marlboro McLarens. I miss the Rothmans Williams and the Rothmans Porsches. I, uh, you know, uh, the West uh, Mercedes is later on. So I miss the tobacco sponsors and the great uh, paint schemes. But probably Marlboro. They had the best paint jobs. 
Favorite F1 cocktail? Uh, well, you know, uh, I, I this might be spoiling it for next week if I can get to the liquor store, but probably Johnny Walker Black because they are the official whiskey of Formula One. Nice. Uh, <laughs> best win? Ooh, the most impressive I ever saw... Well, it would be a twofer. It would have been Michael Schumacher in Spain in, I believe it was 1993 or 1994. I'd have to look up the exact year. He was stuck in fifth gear the whole race. (laughs) Uh, And he was able to to drive through the field. And then uh, Canada in 2012, I believe it was, Jensen Button, it was a rain race. It went actually four hours, which is why they have the two-hour time limit now with red flags and everything. It went four hours. Jensen Button pitted something like five or six times. He had two penalties, and he drove from last to first in the pouring rain and made the pass on the last lap of the race. That was damn it. I watched that whole thing at my grandmother's house. It was nuts. Nice. Uh, Best crash. Oh, well, speaking as someone who has crashed a few times, you never want to say that there's a best. Crash. Now, now, it doesn't mean that they died. It's right. Just something oh. as a driver. What was the best crash to watch? Now, because I'm hoping I that have, they lived, but. Yeah, well, I have not talked about, for obvious reasons, the numerous fatalities, unfortunately, that took place in Formula One. No. Uh, hmm. Probably. Gerhard Berger at Imola in 1992 was insane because I've never seen someone be in a car that long while it was on fire and get out, for the most part, pretty much unscathed. But uh, Robert Kubica in Canada in 2011 or 2012, the year before Jensen Button's wild win, Kubica actually ripped the chassis in half and he went flipping and his legs were exposed, which were very, very scary, but thankfully he didn't hit anything and he only ended up with a twisted ankle and only missed missed one race, but that was nuts. Whoa. All right, most embarrassing moment? Oh, God. Um, Probably Indianapolis 2005, which we're going to talk about next week. That that whole thing set F1 back in America so long that we're just recovering from it now. Uh, But for an individual team moment, uh, Mercedes pit stop... uh, at the Nürburgring last year was pretty embarrassing. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the first one that comes. I'm sure if I had longer to think about it, I'd probably pick a few other ones, but those are the two that come right to mind. All right. And last question, the most important question, why isn't Jeff Gordon your favorite? (laughs) Now, see, you're trying to be a dick here. You're trying to make a joke. (laughs) With a NASCAR driver in F1. But here's the thing, smartass. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Gordon actually did a Formula One test. He tested for Williams Grand Prix Engineering back in 2003. He did a car swap with one Pablo Montoya. And Montoya drove Gordon's NASCAR, and Gordon drove Montoya's Williams F1 car. And... Um, I mean, he was something like 10 seconds off the pace, but to be fair, it was the first time he had ever sat in anything remotely like it. (laughs) You know, I mean, to be 10 seconds off the pace going, I mean, I love NASCAR. We've established that in in our adult fandoms thing. I've come to like it a lot. I went to the race yesterday. 
But going from a NASCAR to a Formula One car is literally like going from one of those tribes in the Amazon to Cape Canaveral and getting in the space shuttle. <laughs> they are about as far apart as humanly possible. So to only be 10 seconds off the pace, uh, I was impressed with him, bad hair piece and all. <laughs> That's well, not his real hair, by the way, in case you all can't figure that out. Amazing. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for us uh, this week. Hopefully, we'll be back next week with Formula One Part Two. Yes, uh, we're going to bring in our good buddy Nick, uh, who is a very recent fan to Formula One, only about three or four weeks in. He discovered it this year, thanks to Drive to Survive, which we're going to talk about next week. And it's going to be, uh, we're going to talk about modern Formula One, uh, both my aspect of it and Nick's as a new fan. And hopefully DJ will be able to talk a little bit more because <laughs> we'll be talking about newer stuff. I mean, to be fair, I did talk your ear off both with Pokemon and Pride. So I figure I'm due for a Mark is the Expert episode. Well, I hope I didn't bore our listeners too much. But Formula One is, is incredible. It's on ESPN currently. Um, just punch it into your DVRs if you want to take a look at it. It's Or actually, no. You know, I take that back. If you have Netflix, go on Netflix and watch an episode of Drive to Survive. That has brought more fans to the series than any other racing has in the last 10 years, which we'll get into next week. Nice. But go watch Drive to Survive on, it, on Netflix. And thank you, listeners, for uh, joining us this week. Um, we want to recommend you subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you get it in your feed. Uh, we drop these at 8 a.m. on Fridays, so you'll have it uh, ready for your lunch break or going into the weekend. Uh, if you like what you're listening to, uh, we'd love it if you could give us a rating on iTunes, save us on Spotify. That really helps us kind of get up in the ratings a little bit, and, and um, eventually we're hoping to get uh, kind of you know featured on that front page. Uh, we have a website, uh, thewitandwhiskeycast.com. Uh, we are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Listen Notes. Uh, we are on just any podcatcher you could think of. We're on your Roku. We're probably on your smart TV if you really try for us. Uh, and we, of course, want to say thank you to Nuno Henry Silva for our intro and outro music. Uh, shout out, brother. Uh, we love you. We hope you're, you're uh, keeping cool in this summer heat. Yeah, hopefully your, your stuff isn't Mountain Nuno. This is a bad day for vinyl, bad week for vinyl. It, it, it Save is. your vinyls if you collect them. Um, and we'll make sure to send you to his SoundCloud in, in uh, our show notes. Uh, but until next week, cheers, everybody. Salud.